0: Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm April Wolf. Every week I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, or producer. And we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work in some strange way. And today I'm really excited to have director Jovanka Vukovic with me. Hi there. Hi,
1: how are you?
0: And Jovanka's calling in from Canada. Please let me introduce you to Yovanka's work. Jovanka is an award-winning filmmaker and writer. Her first short film, The Captured Bird, was executive produced by Guillermo del Toro and played over 60 festivals around the globe, earning four Best Short Film Awards. In the past two decades, she has worked as a visual effects artist, earning a Gemini Award, and cemented a reputation as a genre film authority. She was twice named one of the most important women in the history of horror, serving for a time, and this is why you might wonder why she might have this reputation and authority, um, because she served for about six and a half years as the editor-in-chief of famed Rue Morgue magazine. Is that right? Six and a half years? Seven years? Yeah, I worked there for yeah, about, about six and a half years. Along with just being the person who knows everyone in horror and everything in horror. It is no surprise then that she is the author of a book titled Zombies, an illustrated history of the undead with a foreword by George Romero himself. In 2016, she spread her wings into the U.S. film market, joining the DGA after directing a segment of XX, the first ever all-female horror film anthology from Magnolia Pictures, which had its premiere at Sundance 2017. An alumnus of Berlinale Talent and TIFF Talent Lab. And now her debut, Riot Girls, written by Katherine Collins, who uh, listeners might remember from the Lost in Space episode talking about Jurassic Park, who wrote this movie. Um, This movie, Riot Girls, however, will see its release this year. And when is it coming out, Yovanka?
1: September 13th in um, North America, so in select theaters and VOD. Well, the film tells the story of two young women who
0: must save a young man from the clutches of a little psychopath on the wrong side of Potter's Bluff, a town divided after a mysterious disease wiped out all the adults. So is now set up to direct the art house thriller All My Heroes Are Dead from a script she wrote herself. So you're uh you are working on that now? Is that in production? Are you
1: developing? Uh we're just starting to go out to cast right now. Um, Ooh, it's exciting. That That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's um it's interesting because, like Riot Girls*, it also isn't uh, really a horror movie. It's it's a thriller. Uh, it's an art, sort of an arty thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, this feminist revenge film, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about a woman who has terminal brain cancer who has to kill five people in order to save her own skin. So it's one of those how far is this person willing to go to get what they want movies. Mm-hmm. It's very much in the vein of Nightcrawler or Enemy or, you know, You Were Never Really Here. It's it's that kind of movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I look forward to, you know, getting started on that soon.
0: And I think that, you know, we're going to be able to draw so many parallels between the movie that you chose to speak about today, which is a really great hidden gem for people who aren't, you know, big horror aficionados. It is Dead and Buried from 1981. Can you give us a little explanation about why
1: you chose this as one of your fave genre films? Yeah, I mean, it's so hard. Your show—you've had so many great guests who've picked all these amazing films, and like, you know, you like, oh darn, somebody already picked *Night of the Hunter*, or oh, yeah. you know, or <laughs> oh yeah. And you want to come on and you want to talk about something important, like *Oni Baba*, or like, you know, some movie that it's you like know, some Criterion film or whatever. But oh yeah. But then I thought, you know. Because Rye Girls isn't a horror film, the only film that sort of even tangentially relates to it is Dead and Buried. Mm -hmm. And um, you might be interested in knowing how. Uh, (laughs) Basically, I mean, I I remember on the Blue Underground disc that came out, um, you know, in the early 2000s, Gary Sherman uh, in the director's commentary talked about how. uh Guillermo del Toro was highly influenced by his early film Deathline. Mm-hmm. Um
0: AKA Raw Meat for some. People. Yeah, also
1: called Raw Meat. And and that and that he, you know, references Deathline somehow in every one of his movies, at least up until Pan's Labyrinth, right? And mm-hmm. and I don't know if anybody's ever done that, like gone through all of Guillermo's movies to see if they could find the Death Line reference, but I'm sure someone has. Um, and, and then Gary Sherman himself said that, uh, so, you know, so so that's the film that Guillermo says that made him want to kind of go into the horror business, mm-hmm. and Gary Sherman says for him it was House of Wax, and for me it was several films, but Dead had a really really big effect on me. Um, you know, I, I was a kid when I rented it at the video store. Mm-hmm. And it was just so weird and so different from everything else that was coming out at the time. You know, it was the era of the slasher, you know, the the beginning of the slasher film. Mm-hmm. And um, here is this bizarre little, um, you know, town by the sea where it's almost kind of Lovecraftian, right, in its conceit, which is, you know, this is a spoiler, obviously, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. Oh, yeah, wait, hold on.
0: Let me say my thing. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) For those of you who haven't seen Dead and Buried, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto, as always, is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Dead and Buried first, you can always do that. And sorry to cut you off on
1: (laughs) that. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. I mean, I think modern ad- audiences might see the ending coming, which has like now been you know popularized by The Sixth Sense, and yeah. it's that yeah. it's that from you know Lovecraft's The Outsider, where you know the guy realizes at the end that he's he's been dead all along, and you know this is just this horrible nightmare. Yeah. Um, and so and and it's sort of it's punctuated by so much horrific violence, like amazing spectacular violence from courtesy of Stan Winston. Um and it always it always stayed with me because it was um both strange and grotesque. Um and so when I was when I was um you know agreed to do riot girls I never expected it to be my first feature. I just sort of like was developing things of my own and mm-hmm. and then riot girls came my way and I, I liked it. Uh, I thought it could be fun, uh, you know, almost something like Class of 1984, Warriors, that kind of movie. And yeah. I thought oh, that would be really fun. Probably be fun. something I'll do, you know, in between two, fe- two other features of mine. But it ended up, you know, it, this is the funny thing about this business, uh, you know, it ended up getting financing first. So that's how it became my first feature. And so, you know, when you're a director for hire on something, you try to, you know, squeeze as much of yourself into it as possible. So yep. I said, let's set this movie in the 90s and populate it with all this kind of like early, you know, metal and punk music I was listening to at the time because the the title is an obvious nod to the pe- the feminist punk movement of the era. Yep. And then I started just kind of squeezing in little things. So I was like, can we set it? in a town called Potter's Bluff. And um, I don't think that Catherine was familiar with the movie Dead and Buried. And I just explained, well, it's an obscure cult film. And, you know, none of the... I'm, uh, you just, only horror fans are going to catch it. And so, you know, secretly, I was trying to set this movie in the exact same town. Um, and, and it's as if the events that happened in Riot Girls, this this apocalypse that that killed off all of the adults when you know, and mm-hmm. everyone who reaches the age of majority, um that that it's the same town. It's happening in the same weird little seaside town. Ooh. And right. And so it's the two films are connected in that way. Who would, you, who would have ever thought that I could connect Dead and Buried to Riot Girls? But I did. And so, we, and so Dead and Buried takes place in this little town called Potter's Bluff. When we were scouting, we found a little uh, waterfront town called Perry Sound in northern Ontario. And it was very, very similar to um, you know, the terrain in particular was very similar. Uh, so a lot of trees, and it's very idyllic, and uh, it's this adorable little community. And so I was like, okay, this is this is perfect. And. Um, and so that's how that's how the two films are sort of tangentially connected. <laughs>
0: this is, it's great because it's a great double feature, I think. Um, and let me introduce Dead and Buried so we can get catch our uh, listeners up if they haven't yes, seen please. the movie yet. Written by Ron Shusett and Dan O'Bannon, who people might recognize from a little movie called. Alien, and directed by Gary A. Sherman for release in 1981, Dead and Buried opens on an idyllic beach scene, where a photographer we only know as Freddy is lured into into a strange and violent situation where an odd collection of townspeople beat and burn him. Now we meet Sheriff Dan Gillis, played by James Ferentino, who inspects a body found inside a burning car. This is Freddie, Potter's Bluff resident coroner mortician, coroner slash mortician, inspects the body, and it's alive. It's brought to the hospital, and while nobody's looking, the woman who initially lured Peter into his demise dresses as a nurse and stabs him in the eyeball with a syringe, killing him.
1: Hi, I'm so glad to see that you're feeling better. You had a very close call. You're going to be all right, yeah, just lie still. I'm going to give you something It's going to make you feel
0: even better. Sheriff is rightly freaked out about the murder, but then more murders occur. A family, for instance, accidentally drives through Potter's Bluff and is attacked by a bloodthirsty horde of townspeople. Sheriff sees one bit of this chase and tries to follow, but hits a guy whose still-moving arm gets caught in the grill of his truck. The guy steals his arm back and gives the sheriff chase. Meanwhile, the sheriff's wife, Janet, is acting real fucking weird, teaching her young students about witchcraft and hiding a knife in her drawer.
1: For my class, I'm going to give a lecture in witchcraft. Witchcraft? And why in God's name would you want to teach him that? Kids love creepy things. Keeps them from being bored in my class. So you pick Witchcraft.
0: Sheriff feels like he's going nuts. He gets the arms tissues from his car and gets them tested. Plot twist they've been dead for three months. It's
1: impossible. Look. If
0: you don't believe me, send it upstate somewhere. But I'm telling you that these bits of flesh have been dead at least three or four months. Sheriff then runs a background check on Dobbs, the resident mortician coroner, and finds he was dismissed for unauthorized use of bodies. Sheriff confronts Dobbs, but he finds out in the process that Janet is a reanimated corpse. Janet, I found her in Harris Creek in her car. She had drowned. Crazy. They're totally insane. Not even her injuries or her bloated condition could hide her beauty. Yes, she was. She is. Like all the others. like that man you ran over in your car. He was dead long before you hit. Him. When sheriff shoots Janet, she seems to snap out of Dobbs's power and asks to be buried. Sheriff shoots Dobbs, then buries her. When he returns, he finds Dobbs has reanimated himself, and in the biggest twist of all, the sheriff is reanimated too. So, <laughs> it's a it is a classic story though. You know, you're talking about Lovecraft, you're talking about you know, these kind of older texts and it is a classic story, you know, and and even knowing what you think is probably going to happen, it's still really beautiful and entertaining. And um, th- this movie is really a hidden gem. I think it's um, yeah, it's
1: so good. And I yeah, th- I th- and I think it, you know, it's a great lesson, um, you know, for for filmmakers. There's, uh, you know, there's the movie that you want to make, and then there's the movie that you end up making. And for Gary Sherman, you know, this this movie was initially intended to be a black comedy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, various entities like, you know, uh, I think there were like three different producing entities that... that um, oh, yeah. We'll definitely change, get into that. Yeah. Yeah. Changed. You know, the movie changed hands several times. And by the end of it, you know, they didn't want him to make a black comedy. And he had to change the movie. And I think that was really hard for him. It took him decades um, to learn to love this movie. I think he appreciates it a lot now um, but I think that sometimes those when we're faced with those challenges um, the outcome is something really really original and really unusual and and some of those um, what he would consider to be drawbacks or the things that he was forced to change about the movie are part of what make it so special today yeah so, and I
0: think he had said that about 90% when he looked back on it he said about 90% is actually what I wanted and that's like Enough, And then the 10% is, you know, they couldn't get Stan Winston for the reshoots, that kind of thing. But I wanted to read a quote from him, too, about um, switching up those producers. um, Because you're right, it is three times. He said, when we started the film, Richard St. John's Production Company was the original producer of the film. And Richard absolutely understood what Dan and Ron and I wanted to do with this film. And he was extremely supportive of it. At one point, the secondary production company, which was Aspen Productions, actually took over the film from Richard. Richard had other commitments, and John Hyde came up with some money and bought off Richard's company. Hyde's company had a slightly different view of what the movie should be, but was still pretty supportive of what we were doing. And just as we finished production, I think I had just delivered the director's cut, PSO International bought out John Hyde's company, and it became a PSO production. That is labyrinthine. It is, (laughs) there's too many things happening, and then you're trying to be creative on top of all of the business and money changing hands. And one of these people comes from... The Guinness fortune, so like the beer company, they were like, we don't want to be in right. making movies, you know. So Guinness
1: was funding this movie for a while. So strange. It's amazing how well Gary handled this situation because, you know, he was, he could have just walked away and said, you know, fuck it. I'm unhappy with the way that this is going and I, I just want to abandon this picture. But he felt the need to protect it. Mm-hmm. and. And so when they gave him the choice of, like, well, you know, you, we, you can either come in and shoot these extra scenes or we'll find someone else to do it. And there's no way. Mm-hmm. There's no way he would allow that. Gary and I are friends um, now. And I, I did get permission uh, from him <laughs> to, <laughs> to set my movie in Potter's Bluff. Oh. Um, and yeah. And so he's, you know, he's, he's kind of a r- remarkable person. I think a lot of people would have cracked. Under the, under the stress mm-hmm. of of uh, this this movie, I mean, you set out and you're like you, you sort of know what you're going to make, and he and he had it all planned out. There there wasn't a lot on that film that he um, that came by surprise, right? When he was making it, he kind of yeah. knew exactly what he was going to do. Yeah, and I admire his choices because you know you can see in some places um, where he had these like really long. Takes and long dolly shots and stuff that are mm-hmm. just like snipped, snipped super short. Um, you know, because someone else, you know, insisted that the pacing wasn't good or whatever. But yeah,
0: we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into some more of, you know, our favorite parts of the special effects, how that kind of influences the way that, that you work, Yovanka. And also, I wanted to get back a little bit into the writing process and humor and how he how he was working with his writers to develop this this story. So we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: Macho Man to the top rope, the flying elbow, the cover, we've got a new
0: champion! We're here with Macho Man Randy Savage after his big win to become the new world champion. What are you going to do now, Match?
1: I'm gonna go listen to the newest episode of the Tights and Fights podcast, oh yeah.
0: Tell us more about this podcast.
1: It's the podcast of power. Too sweet to be sour, funky like a monkey, woke discussions, man. And jokes about wrestlers' fashion choices, myself excluded, yeah. I can't wait to listen. Neither can I. You can find it Thursdays on Maximum Fun. Oh yeah, dig it.
0: Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm joined today in Canada calling through Jovanka Vukovic, hi. Hi. Um, (laughs) We're talking about Dead and Buried and uh, we wanted to get a little bit into The writing process, Um, something that uh, Gary Sherman had said was, quote, Ron Shusett and I sat down and worked on a few scripts together and Dead and Buried was one of them. I didn't do the original script, but I sat down with Ron and we went through it. And I just kept saying there's way too much mumbo jumbo in it that you're going to have to convince an audience to believe and they're not going to believe it. So I don't think it's going to be a very successful of a movie because I don't think the audiences today swallow mumbo jumbo just because you put it in front of them and expect them to believe it. I said that by integrating a kind of tongue in cheek attitude about the whole thing and the more tongue in cheek we were, the more comic relief we could put into the piece, the scarier the scary stuff would be, end quote. Um, I thought that was a really astute way of thinking about this particular film.
1: Yeah, well, he really felt strongly about like, you know, to balance black comedy with the scenes of horror. He really felt that that was going to work. Um, and it's it's actually kind of amazing that he lands the tone in this movie cuz it is so weird because uh, you know, Jack Albertson who plays Dobbs plays it so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in such broad strokes mm-hmm. uh, and and almost like this kind of like scenery chewing Vincent Price kind of character right yes. who yes. like is a mortician and driving around in a Cadillac hearse listening to big band music and he, and he sleeps in one of those like m- like mortuary kind of like drawer casket things i don't know what do you call those
0: the, <laughs> yeah like the like the the little cool, cooler things and yeah, the like he's, wall.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's so, so weird it, it's kind of an amazing tone to land, right? It's not, not easy to do. Um, yeah. And-, and then you can feel Dan O'Bannon, you know, Dan O'Bannon Bannon was brought in to do a polish mm-hmm. on the film. And I don't know, like, exactly if, if anybody remembers specifically what he added to it. But I always felt like the overall, because he's the big Lovecraft fan, I always thought the overall conceit of, of, of uh, you know, him, the sheriff, uh, Dan Gillis being dead was straight out of The Outsider so I always thought that that's probably something that Dan brought to the script but I don't think so because he you know before he passed away was pretty explicit about how he really just did a polish on this movie so
0: yeah he seemed when when he was doing some interviews before that it wasn't it wasn't even just that he did a sometimes he would almost disavow his participation yeah. not because he didn't like the movie but he's just like well these are the suggestions that i added and they didn't incorporate them but at the same time you know being a writer myself and i'm sure that you understand too um, Sometimes you're there's actually more of you incorporated than what you know, but it's just <laughs> that you're you're not necessarily aware of it because you you're kind of like 100 percent in, you know. And so he, I'm not really sure how much he added in, but I'm sure that there is like an imprint of Dan O'Bannon there, even if he wasn't, you know,
1: yeah. Fully happy. We know. We know he didn't like the eyeball scene. (laughs) He's pretty vocal in interviews about how he doesn't like eyeball violence.
0: Do you? I mean, when you're when you're working on your films, do you feel like you are more drawn to the terror over the horror? Bringing up what you were talking about before, and that kind of you know, like the the setting up, the offering of of this possibility.
1: Yeah. So I like to do both, you know, um, with the box, um, I have, you know, a scene of absolute grotesque violence uh, come out of nowhere in a movie that is otherwise uh, a, a, a film of like creeping existential dread. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I like to do both. I'm definitely not afraid of violence. I mean, those guys were heroes of mine growing up. Rob Rob Bottin. Stan Winston, um, all of those guys Nicotero, Savini—I mm-hmm. um, was just a huge fan. You know, I used to, uh, you know, go take a train to another town so that I could pick up *Fangoria*. You know, you've heard this story from probably every horror fan. Yeah, <laughs> it's always yeah, the yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so. Um, I have a uh, an affinity for that uh, for practical effects and 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 for this kind of not turning our eyes away not cutting away mm-hmm. from violence and so that was actually a challenge on Riot girls because you know my impulse is to show everything and to have violence like every 10 minutes in a movie like this but I had to show an enormous amount of restraint. Because you know this is Riot Girls is not uh, a you know a horror movie, and and so I I, you know I had to really restrain myself. I mean, that said, we do like kill like an eight eight year old kid. (laughs) And,
0: <laughs> I love Children and, in Peril. I'm a huge fan.
1: <laughs> you know, we slice this kid's throat and blow this. Like, you know, We I saved the, you know, the, the most extreme scene of, scene of violence for a sexual uh, predator, for, you know, a would-be rapist, um, deservedly. I kind of feel like
0: Gary Sherman almost came at the wrong time to be appreciated. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And uh, if you rewatch any of these movies, whether it's Deathline to Dead and Buried or Poltergeist 3, which, you know, uh, all three of those kind of riddled with problems and not the best kind of morale all the time. But the guy soldiered through to make some very interesting movies. And even, you know, within those, just really beautiful shots, really beautiful um and inventive ways of moving the camera of doing special effects. And I think that that's not very difficult when you're kind of going against the grain of the trends. Um, do you ever feel that way in your
1: own work? What? like I came like I'm in around at the wrong time? yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you know? I'm a woman director, yeah. <laughs> 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 I feel it every day. Um because we're still uh we still have a long way to go. You know, things are getting better. I mean, the fact that you have a podcast that's exclusively interviewing women filmmakers um tells me that things have gotten better. I mean, you're shining you are shining a light on these sort of like vital uh you know, women filmmakers who are forging um the, this path for but you know, um, it's still a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, and you still get... Uh, I get a lot of weird responses to <laughs> my scripts. Uh, people tell me they are too masculine, too violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, it's, it's, it's so strange, the expectations, you know, when people read um, scripts by women who are, you know, working in the genre space. And, mm-hmm. you know, the expectations are... I don't know that I'm supposed to make a a movie about two people sitting on a couch talking about their feelings. I don't know. And then, <laughs> and then It's they a lower get these... budget
0: for sure. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Unless one of their heads explodes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh so um yeah. I mean, I, you know, I guess I, I sometimes feel, I always feel, I've always felt like an outsider my entire life. And that's, I don't even feel like I belong in the horror um, scene, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like it's, its you know, I've been lucky enough to have a career sort of working in the genre space. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. But I, it's just the nature of of uh, who I am. I've always been an outsider and a loner, and just kind of doing things my own way. And 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 I think that's perhaps the biggest reason why I chose to do Riot Girls, was because I related to these two to the two girls who just didn't fit in mm-hmm. in the world. They're just too punk, too poor, too queer, too weird. Yeah. And you know, when I was a kid, I would have given anything to to meet another person who would come over and watch horror movies. Um, and read comic books with me. And so, uh, you know, I I have traditionally masculine in- interests, I guess. Like I'll put masculine in air quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ride motorcycles and, you know, I make horror movies. And so people still don't, they don't understand that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh it's still a challenge getting these kinds of films made with the kinds of characters that I've been writing, which are very complex multi dimensional female protagonists um who are troubled um and so I drawing obviously from my own personal experience uh and i and I think it's really important that we make these kinds of movies and we are we are seeing more and more of them obviously um these kinds of stories where we don't have to ask for permission or make apologies for women to be fucked up and also normal and also (laughs) likable and Mm -hmm. at times like, you know, we can be simultaneously a shitty mother and a great wife, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) right? Um, So you know, that's sort of my impulse is to sort of redefine women in the genre space Right, to tell horror stories or any kind of, I realize now, because Riot Girls is more of a cult film, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, is to sort of just uh, de- depict women as actual people. And so when people ask me, oh, well, you, you make horror, feminist horror films, like, what does that mean? And it's far too superficial an interpretation to just um, say, let's make the woman a killer or a lesbian <laughs> mm-hmm. you know this is what this is what men i think male screenwriters with all their you know blind spots tend to do to try to turn something take an old script and dust it off and make it feminist but it's really <laughs> we in quotes, just though.
0: quote right? make it feminist though
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's really just about depicting women as people yeah and, and we that's hard. Been. <laughs> oh yeah i mean it's uh it's really revolutionary <laughs> Uh, So I I don't know if that answers your questions. You know, do I feel like I belong and I'm in the the right place and time? Yes and no. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I belong here. Yes, I deserve this space where, you know to carve out this space in the genre for myself and, and for other women? And it's also just a
0: different kind of, I mean, we're coming into a time where there's different kinds of horror is allowed now. I think that we're past just the slasher times, and there get to be so many different types of sub-horror that, that get to flourish. You know, of, of it doesn't have to be just the blood and gore, though we love it. Um, and and it, I think that that's a really good time and place For someone like you who appreciates both what we were talking about, the terror and the horror. We have to take a break, but when we come back, I would love to talk a little bit more about Dobbs and Jack Albertson and just what he brings to the movie, but also Robert England. This is, you know, one of his first movies. So we'll take a quick break and then we'll come right back.
1: Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So, the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the odd couple. <laughs> Adam Scott and Jane Levy.
0: Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too businessy. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll
1: learn what it's all about. <laughs> <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner.
0: Baby, this is family. My uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight!
1: <laughs> a new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society for maximum fun.
0: back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf and I'm joined today by Jovanka Vukovic and she's calling in from Toronto to talk about Dead and Buried. Um, Okay, so uh, when we left off, I really wanted to talk about um, Jack Albertson and, and, you know, what he brings to this movie. For those of you who aren't familiar, you actually would remember Jack Albertson probably as Grandpa Joe from uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, right?
1: I believe. Yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, if that's,
0: that's how I remember him, at least.
1: He has, uh, you know, a long career in comedy, right? And apparently whenever they were in between takes, whenever they weren't shooting, he was entertaining people doing with his stand-up. So um, he was a very deliberate choice on, on the part of the director.
0: The thing is, also we should say that this was his last movie role. He was actually getting ill in real life. So there has some kind of resonance to that. Um, I, I remember Gary Sherman saying that they had um, finished up the ADR that um, that Jack had to do, and then went out to dinner, and then he left because he wasn't feeling well, and then the next day he was admitted to a hospital and died. And yeah, so it was just he like
1: was, he passed away from cancer. Yeah, yeah, he lost. Lost. So this was his last movie. And the, yeah. the thing that I thought was
0: really interesting, I do think that Jimmy Ferentino, who plays um, the sheriff, I think that his performance is really, really lovely and evocative. Um, and he's very committed to this role of just kind of being tortured. And, <laughs> and it's really great. But also, um, you know, Gary Sherman was saying in an interview that part of that came from him reacting to, um, you know, Jack Albertson being sick um he said, "Quote for Jimmy Farentino it was really difficult. Jimmy had just lost his father, and we were doing a scene in Dobbs's embalming room where Dobbs was sitting behind a desk, and the character that Jimmy was playing was sitting on the desk. And when we were doing Jimmy's side of the shot from Jack to Jimmy, Jack fell asleep three or four times, which was mainly from his medication that he was taking. And Jimmy just started crying because he remembered sitting with his dad in the hospital and talking to his dad, and he kept falling asleep. Jimmy just broke down and completely, at one point, ran off the set and got into his trailer and just didn't want." to come out he was so upset I had to go in and sit down with him and we talked about his father's death I finally got Jimmy to come back to the set and finish the scene that was pretty moving it was moving for everyone on the set working with Jack Albertson was one of my great joys and I thought that was a really I, I guess when I heard that story and I was watching Jimmy Farentino's scenes again I, I feel like I saw that emotional resonance there
1: yeah I think that He'd said that that's how his father actually died was like sitting up in a in the you know mm-hmm. he just was talking and then passed away and so I think it was really triggering and traumatizing for him to have this relationship with Albert uh, Jack Albertson and um, um, knowing that he's sick and not long for this world um, you know that must have been extremely difficult for him. But
0: at the same time, Gary Sherman's getting in a really great performance out of his actor because he's able to draw from these very personal uh, stories and and feelings. And I'm wondering, you know, I think like maybe as a director, I think that you probably have to ask your actors to kind of go deep into this well. And I was wondering how comfortable or uncomfortable that is in those mm-hmm. moments.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, like, it's, you know, depending on how an actor works, right? Um, some, I will say, I can't say her name, but I approached an actor to be in All My Heroes Are Dead, and um, I had a phone call with her, and she said, you know, if it wasn't for the the fact that this person is dying of cancer, that it would be a, an immediate yes from me, but I'm really struggling with um, with um, um, playing a character with cancer. and. and Asking myself whether or not I can do that because for me, the way I work is uh, it everything happens. For you, it's just a movie; it's stuff on a page. But everything that happens on this page actually has to happen to me. Mm-hmm. So I have to spend six to eight weeks as a person living with terminal brain cancer, and I don't know if I can do that. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was like I I just I have so much enormous respect for the craft right but people who work like that mm-hmm. <laughs> actors who you know take uh, the rules so seriously and then you know just um respond to the other actors mm-hmm. um, uh, you know is, is is that's how you get truth yeah and you know and and truth is everything um in 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 the movies and and in, in a scene and from moment to moment from scene to scene, you know, it's, it's everything. So um, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to observe <laughs> mm-hmm. I, because I am not an actor. I don't even like doing uh, like Q&A intros at, the, at my movies, you know. <laughs> 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 um, but what I can do is, uh, that I think helps them is that I'm really honest with them. Uh, I don't ask actors to be any more vulnerable than I'm willing to be. Mm-hmm. so i am um, deep and open with them uh, i share with them my personal pain and fear and everything and i think that you know people can go deeper and become more they can become more comfortable and relaxed knowing that they're in good hands right and a lot of directors not a lot of directors work that way some mm-hmm. some directors you know just Like Alfred Hitchcock, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. treated people treated people like pieces of furniture and (laughs) kind Mm -hmm. of told them where to be and what to do and how to respond to things. And, um, you know, not everybody can work that way. Um, You get the best you get the best thing, the best performances out of people when uh, you make them feel safe. Um, I think that's really important.
0: You know, you had mentioned something um, before about messaging in movies. And I I wanted to touch on that with this film um, because Gary Sherman had said that he has been fortunate enough to make um, at least three films that have some timelessness quality to those. And he he quoted those as being Deathline, Dead and Buried and Vice Squad. Um, Mm -hmm. And he said about this film that it's about really the fear of loss of control. And he said, quote, all of my films have a hidden political or social statement in them. Dead and Buried is a movie, again, about control, manipulation. It's about people like George W. Bush, obviously this interview took place around that time, who use their power base to manipulate. I believe very strongly in the sanctity of the individual, and I'm very opposed to the assumed philosophies. Each one of us should be responsible to come up with our own philosophy of life, and we don't need these people, preachers or priests or rabbis or pundits, telling us what to believe. For me, Dead and Buried makes an even more important statement now than it did when I felt so compelled to make it. Even the one human being in the film that believes he has free will wakes up to find he's been under the same control. There's this growing fear amongst many thoughtful people that we are headed far down that road at this point. Gary Sherman, a prophet uh,
1: of the future. Yeah, I was going to say, man, he's so (laughs) smart uh, because, you know, the... Yeah, the loss of personal autonomy. Could we be, especially when, with regards to women in the United States yeah. who are at risk of losing their rights and freedoms? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we have a very real reason to be afraid um, yeah, now more than ever. Um, yeah, uh, I think with is the question about messages in my movies or me- the message in his film?
0: No, just messages in general. It's like putting a message in a film or having some kind of backbone in your your film you know something to always come back to like why am I making this movie yeah why do I want to say this you know because I think that we can get lost in plots and we can get lost in characters sometimes but it's like if you have you know a driving ethos or you know something that we used to do in playwriting um one of my teachers told me taught me how to to, to keep going back to that was to write a credo, which is a statement of your beliefs, like a page long, just rambling, that you really truly believe in every month and just continue to go back to that credo um, when you feel like you've lost your way. And to me, it seems like he's got that kind of just in his head. Like, this is what I believe in, so that's my guiding principle.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to have a theme, you know, I think it, because you can always refer, I agree with you, you can refer back to your theme or your guiding principle or whatever you know the the impulse was to tell this story, and it'll it will it will guide you when you're not sure, and um, you know, and and it can it, it can influence all kinds of decisions from, uh, you know, when the when costume shows up and says, which one of these ties do you want this guy to wear? Mm-hmm. And if you refer back to your theme, and if your theme is like, you know, what is a life without love in it, or whatever, let's say you're making a, <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> a, a drama, um, that it might help you in some way make that decision, even on the spot, right? You, you might be able to, you know, make creative choices that relate directly to your theme. Mm-hmm. And, um I, you know, I'm sure that you do that with your, your screenwriting, right? Yeah. Um, um, so I always have a theme or a message uh, as well that I'm working from. That, uh you know that i find helps me and and in, and in informs almost every decision i make
0: do you feel like you're obsessed with specific themes like is there something that keeps coming yeah. back in your work
1: oh uh, yeah i mean we, we we wouldn't be storytellers if we weren't like naturally compulsive yeah, obsessive compulsive people right yeah, like obviously we obsess over things and like and then and then, you know if you if you decide that you want to make a movie it's going to take you years and so you better be obsessed with it <laughs> 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 um um, sorry, what was the, the the beginning? The rest of the question about that? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I obsess over stuff? Yeah, I'm. I am. I like live in in uh, you know abject terror of dying from a wasting disease like oh, cancer. Oh shit! So, yeah. So I, that's why I, one of the reasons why I wrote All My Heroes Are Dead, it's about a woman who cheats death, right? She gets cancer and she beats it Yeah. Uh, by any means necessary. Yeah. Um, it's also, you know, um, I, you know, I watched last year, my mother passed away from a long-term wasting disease. And uh, so one of my, you know, greatest fears came true and I, and. And just in general, I'm terrified of dying. I wake up at three in the morning in cold sweats, mm-hmm. <laughs> thinking, thinking about the oh my god, I'm going to die, and I'm so not okay with that. Mm-hmm. I have so much I want to do and say, and I can't imagine not being here for for my daughter. And you know, mm-hmm. so I I have you know I live in in, in existential terror of my own mortality, <laughs> and so yeah. that could be why I do what I do because when I was in school. I studied forensic anthropology, and I very quickly realized that um, there's a big difference between what happens on paper and what happens in real life, and I am not cut out for the John Douglas shit, you know? (laughs) I am not cut out for, you know, know, real dead bodies and all that stuff, but I live for fake gore. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: uh, That's about time for us. I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about *Dead and Buried* and your movie *Riot Girls*. And again, um, September 13th is
1: when people can see it in theaters. Limited. That's right.
0: Okay. That's right.
1: Yeah, available in North America, Um, so Canada and um, uh, and the U.S. on the same day, September 13th. Select select theaters, um, and obviously. on demand, uh, iTunes, all that, Amazon, all that stuff. So however you choose to watch movies, um, theater or at home, I'm cool. We'll still be friends. (laughs) (laughs) Just please see it. (laughs) Well, you heard it from her. This is Jovanka
0: Vukovic telling you you have to see her movie. Thank you so much for talking with us today.
1: Oh no, thank you so much for having me on the show, April. It's been a real pleasure. I'm I'm a big fan and I look forward to seeing your movie. And yours <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at Switchblade Pod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and this is a production of MaximumFun.org.
1: It's going to
0: make you feel even better. MaximumFun.org.
1: Comedy and culture.
0: Artist owned. Audience supported.